You're listening to KDNK's Public Affairs Program for Land's Sake. I'm Bill Kite, your host. And today we don't have any guests. We're going to talk a little bit about a couple of very important um, recent articles. Uh, one was, uh, well, actually there were three in the uh, Soper Sun. Amy Hayden Marsh uh, interviewed three native people about the recent popes declaring the doctrine of uh, Christian discovery, it was call- as it was called, or the doctrine of discovery, um, that it was uh, no longer applying. And, that it, and it, of course, it wasn't rescinded, which I, I, I hoped it would have been rescinded. But uh, nonetheless, uh, the Pope, uh, through pressure from indigenous leaders, uh, basically said that uh, it's no longer um, applicable, which we've understood for a number of years ourselves. But uh, talking then about the doctrine of discovery a little bit, and then also going to the Northern Ute Nation and their people, and uh, three uh, articles recently appeared through Aspen Journalism. And um, and that's going to be uh, interesting, I think, because if you haven't read those, uh, Tim uh, Cooney of Aspen Journalism has uh, done some really good writing, which we'll go over and talk a little bit about, because I think these are very important in today's time in which we live. There's so much unresolved and unsettled and really painful trauma for indigenous nations and people, including anger and animosity about the doctrine of discovery and what it has ended up doing to native people over the 500 years that it's been in effect. And I guess the one thing, too, that um, people don't like stories that aren't fairy tale stories. They don't like uncomplicated stories. Um, and this is not a neat, uncomplicated story about the Ute people and the doctrine of discovery. It's a hauntingly lonely story at times, visceral as well. For there are no Ute descendants of the original inhabitants, uh, the ancestors. Um, produced through all the years they lived here, the thousands of years that the Ute people lived in the part of Colorado that we live in, their original homeland. Um, It's a story of the collusion of two completely different belief systems. Uh, But there's so much unsettled and unresolved grief uh, regarding the story that I think some people just don't want to hear it, and I think we need to hear it. It's important today to know the story of the Ute people and what we as the conquering nation have bestowed upon them. The first thing to to look at really is in uh, 18 and 79, September 29th, the Battle of Milk Creek occurred, and um, it was a battle for the Ute lifeway that they lost. They won the battle but really lost the war. And... uh, Peter Drecker, who wrote The Utes Must Go, uh, has passed away a few years ago, wrote that the Army's invasion into the reservation on September 29, 1879, is a day that shall live in infamy for the Ute, a day like the Sand Creek Massacre for the Cheyenne and Arapaho, and a day like 9-11 for a larger tribe of whites. So again, that makes it important for us to know about, and we'll talk a little bit further about the Sand Creek Massacre and how it, it related to that Battle of Milk Creek in a very important way. And then, you know, for the Lutes, uh, Utes to lose 16 million acres of their guaranteed reservation and homeland 
in Colorado, uh, and then to be forced at gunpoint to move to, to Utah from the beautiful land in Colorado that they called home, um, and then the Southern Utes to be required to go to a small section of land that nobody wanted as well down near Ignacio, um, I think it really speaks volumes of the fact that that, that uh, particular reservation, the Southern Ute Reservation, has its own natural gas production company, its own casino, and is a, is a very wealthy nation as far as uh, indigenous people in America go. But really, the Utes only wanted to be left alone uh, on their sacred land. And uh, they, their, their ancestors who lived here for, like I said, thousands of years, the remains are still here today, and the Ute people like to come back and visit this area when they can. I've been um, along on some of those trips myself. It's very rewarding to see, and yet at the same time, uh, it's it's very sad. Um, there were three separate treaties that uh, were never really um, adhered to by the United States, uh, and they were broken. It led to the, the Milk Creek uh, battle, as, as it was called, and they, 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 they are still a sovereign nation, uh, just like any of the indigenous tribes in North America. There are over 500 different indigenous tribes, many not recognized by the United States government, as it should be. Uh, for reasons we don't have time to go into at this at this point uh, in the show, but Pope Francis um, went to Canada here back in April. I think it was March, actually March 30th uh, of this year, and responded to in Indigenous demands that that he really repudiate the doctrine of discovery, um, which were theories backed by 15th century papal bulls or uh, really announcements, pronouncements that legitimized the colonial seeking era uh, of native lands in, in the form of a basis. Property laws today are based upon that doctrine of discovery. And the Vatican statement said that those papal bulls did not actually reflect the equal dignity and rights of indigenous people and have not been expressed as, uh, they're not been, con- been considered as expressions of the Catholic faith. And it marked a historic recognition, really, when the Pope came to Canada and made that statement that uh, the colonial area abuses that were committed by European powers, um, really to be issued by a Latin American pontiff, is, I think, uh, an historic event in itself. But basically, it it really prevented uh, any actual acknowledgement of Vatican culpability in that whole 500 years of colonialization of the Americas. And um, it did ask for their forgiveness, but as uh, some of the people that Amy Haddon Marsh interviewed um, for her three really good stories on the 1493 Doctrine of Discovery, uh, Stephen Newcomb was um, a Shawnee uh, Indian who she interviewed, published in, um, in, the, in June the 7th, so if you haven't seen that, I, I suggest you go and look in the archives, uh, the Soper Sun archives. All you have to do is go to Google and put Amy Hayden, Hayden Marsh and 1493 Doctrine of Discovery, and you'll find all three of the, the interviews that she conducted. Uh, but the idea that 
you could come into lands already occupied by indigenous people and claim them. It was the whole basis of that uh, papal bull or decree. And really that's the point. It became law um, under the title of organic or fundamental law based upon when you go to buy land today in a title search that a whole system is based upon those papal bulls um, back in uh, over that 500-year period of conquest. And it's really the basis of the entire international world, uh, world order. Uh, it has its interwoven roots in the United States as a, a concept of uh, that helped to manifest destiny in which westward expansion ignored the rights of indigenous people uh, and a claim to be um, done in the name of, of religion or the name of Christian religion by some people. Uh, and, and it created people really that uh, it created a new reality for people that was had nothing to do with the original uh, inhabitants and, and their belief, their sacred sites that they had that were basically overrun, in many cases desecrated. And uh, the repudiation really, it it's uh, significant, but it doesn't go all the way of being, um, of, of taking it away and, and wiping it clean from the books. But the, the fact that the war against the indigenous people and their belief systems and their wisdom systems and their language and culture and spiritual traditions is still ongoing to many people that, that um, are descendants of the original inhabitants. And that recognition of them as a sovereign nation does not exist in a lot of people's vocabularies. And I think that's an important, very important distinction is you're not dealing with other nations, you're dealing with a nation within a nation when you deal with Native American tribes. There's so much really unsettledness, uh, like Regina Whiteskunk, uh, when she was interviewed by Amy Hayden Marsh, uh, basically said that, you know, we're now just part of a big nation, whereas before um, they were their own nation, based on a matriarchal system, by the way, which many people do not know. And uh, basically the one of the sins that happened during that period of conquest that still has ram, uh, ramifications is the fact that boarding schools were established to take away kids from their their culture and their families and change them into white people. Um, and, and, you know, for Native Americans, that was pretty much uh, brainwashing to substitute a value system unknown to them and not part of their spiritual belief system, which included a relationship with Creator and the land. And the whole problem, too, in regards to, to this is the fact that the United States still does not recognize the UN um, Indigenous Rights uh, Charter that was put together by a lot of indigenous people across the world. And uh, in in that in that recognition, a lot of times the, the UN called um, indigenous people peoples and, and populations and uh, not representatives of a nation, of a sovereign nation. So re repudiating the doctrine of discovery by the Pope uh, it is, is not far enough for, for many people because it was not revoked. And it's not just a land issue, really, uh, as Regina White Skunk said in her interview with, with Amy. Um, 
that colonizing governments really legalized the, their superiority, including the system of of uh, laws and judicial system and courts. And um, there's a, a book, great book written by um, one of the scholars, Indian scholars, um, entitled um, In the Courts of the Conquerors. Uh, and I all of a sudden have f- forgotten my, uh, the name of the, the gentleman who wrote that, but it, it to many tribes today, that whole system is a system of, of, it's a foreign system, the system of the enemy, because it still recognizes uh, the rights of the nation over the rights of a sovereign nation and its people. And the whole issue, too, of the, the boarding school issue, the, um, the trauma issue, um, goes back to really the Sand Creek Massacre for my own, um, my wife, my own family. Uh, and she wrote a really excellent article Kate Collins did, my wife, back in November 23rd, uh, called The Past is Pro- Prologue in Soper Sun. The Soper Sun has been doing some really good good articles uh, in acknowledging that um, things are not quite right in the world because of the trauma that was associated and still associated with events over 100 years ago. And uh, that Sand Creek Massacre, uh, my uh, wife's great-great-grandmother escaped that massacre uh, and uh, today, it's a it's a visceral thing with her because she still knows the fact that what what history produced, uh, basically, it you know was was a fact that it it ended up causing the Arapaho Nation to really be put into a reservation about the same time as the Ute Reservation revolted in 1878 and 79. Uh, and when the Rapo Nation, uh, which my wife is a tribal member of, uh, was relegated to the reservation, there were really only 383 individuals left, and only 53 of those were men. And at the same time, it, when that happened in 1878 and 79, there were there were only uh, by 1880 450 bison out of the 60 million that had been the breadbasket of the Plains tribes. And Kate's uh, great-grandmother um, contributed to the Rapho Dictionary uh, later in her life and was a dedicated historian of all aspects of tribal life. Uh, and so her heritage goes back to, to Sand Creek, and Sand Creek was in, uh, very important to the plight of the northern Utes as uh, Tim um, Cooney at Aspen Journalism starts his three series articles uh, uh, entitled Plight of the Northern Utes in uh, June 25th of this year. And if you haven't read those three articles, I would really hope that you do so, again, by just Googling um, Tim Cooney and Aspen Journalism and the Plight of the Northern Utes. Uh, very well done articles. <clears throat> And the Battle of Milk Creek that occurred uh, happened because the Utes knew about the Sand Creek Massacre. They knew that as a sovereign nation, they were about to be invaded along the boundary at Milk Creek, which was the the boundary of of the Ute Nation and the reservation. And uh, to have the the territory invaded by U.S. troops um, about 17 miles from today's Meeker, Sparked the rebellion then that killed eleven people at the um, the Ute agency, in which Mr. Uh, Meeker, uh, 
after which the the town of Meeker's named, um, really produced behavior that caused that rebellion in in coinciding with the Battle of Milk Creek, and it it started the the demise of the Ute Nation. But they knew about the Sand Creek Massacre uh, on the Eastern Plains, and they knew that one side was basically unarmed. They weren't going to let that happen in Milk Creek when uh, really uh, they were invaded by United States troops. Uh, And the treaties that the Utes had signed in 1868, uh, for instance, and then in, in 1849, before that, they had surrendered tor- territory in northern New Mexico. In 1863 as well, lands were appropriated east of the Continental Divide that had already squeezed the Utes out of more of their territory. Um, and then the western Colorado, most of western Colorado here on the western slope was was part of the Ute territory in, in 1868. But then 1871, Congress quit making treaties, uh, formal treaties with any nations, and uh, the, the Utes knew then that they were going to be, continue to be squeezed, and there, there were some Ute leaders uh, among uh, Chief Uray who knew that unless peace uh, was forthcoming with the white people, that there would be no peace for the Utes. And that seeking of peace coincided uh, directly with the Thornburg battle, uh, as it's been called as well, because... Uh, the commanding officer Thornburg was bringing troops into the reservation. When he when he crossed that Milk Creek uh, reservation line, then he violated uh, the boundary of a sovereign nation. And and the Utes knew, if the same consequences that occurred at Sand Creek were about to occur on the reservation, they were going to defend themselves. And in the inquiry that um, happened after the Utes. Uh, gave up their hostages that were taken at the um, Meeker, uh, the the Indian site where where Meeker had been killed. Uh, that inquiry con- really concluded that the battle at Mill Creek was just that. It was a battle between two opposing forces. The problem with the killing at uh, the agency in, uh, where Meeker was was killed was murder, basically ruled by the um, by the injunction that. Uh, occurred from the study of uh, and the investigation into the Ute uh, incident. But, it, you know, at one time there were seven Ute bands, distinct bands, um, that were brought to reservations. Um, and because of that, um, basically, they were confined to a smaller area, which Meeker had in, had continued to try to make them into white, uh, white uh, living like white people and plowing the earth. Uh, and when he had plowed their racetrack, that was one of the last straws, really, that led to the rebellion at the at the uh, Indian Agency. One of the earliest tribes to really acquire the horse from the Spanish in 1600s were the Utes, and uh, they were spiritually connected to their horses. Uh, they had, at times some of the the people at uh, at the uh, Meeker uh, Indian Agency had over 300 horses. Um, Quinket had a hundred horses. Uh, Nick Nick Cat and his son had about three hundred horses when, when all the, uh, hell broke loose at the at the agency site, and Meeker had then requested what brought the the soldiers into the to the reservation. He had requested protection from the War Department, uh, and the War Department had through uh, General William Sherman had 
approved three companies of cavalry and mounted infantry uh, to be sent from Fort Steele to the White River Unrest, uh, as it was called, and the Utes prepared to defend themselves uh, if that 1868 treaty boundary at Milk Creek was crossed, and that they did. Um, and as uh, as Tim says in an article, his article, they had traveled 25 miles a day for a 178-mile journey uh, to try to get to the reservation at the request of Meeker. And then on September 29th, 1879, that's when the battle took place. And uh, things have not been the same for the Utes since then. You're listening to KDNK's um, public affairs program for land's sake. I'm Bill Kite, your host. And today we're speaking about the uh, really good articles that have been written by Soper Sun recently, by uh, Amy Haddon Marsh, on the um, doctrine of discovery uh, and also we're talking about Tim uh, Cooney's articles uh, in Aspen Journalism that were put in um, Aspen Daily News as well. His second article was, was about tensions erupt in the violent retribution at Meeker's Indian Agency. And uh, it's after the, the murders occurred, uh, after the uh, 11 white people were killed uh, at the agency and Meeker's uh, wife and his daughter were um, taken hostage, as was also um, a woman that had her husband had been killed as well. And uh, actually, when Josephine told her story, she was careful not to um, really put any blame on anyone, but her sister created quite, um, quite a, uh, really stirred up quite a bit of anger against the Utes at that time. The newspapers and all over the, the Colorado were talking about the Utes must go, and uh, basically the, the Pitkin, uh, who was the governor at the time, after uh, which Pitkin County is named, uh, said that really any re- Indian, any Indians uh, off the reservation, he wrote, uh, could were game to be hunted and destroyed like wild beast, um, and. In 1873, the Brunot Agreement uh, that was ha- was uh, signed with the Utes, of course there were no treaties after 1871, but that agreement negotiated in Washington, D.C., then took even more land from the Utes and required uh, later that um, after peace was made with the Utes, uh, after they were rounded up basically and put on the reservation in Utah, the Uinta-Uray Reservation, that basically, um, after that happened, the Utes no, were no longer in Colorado in the place that we now live today. And so the consequences of the doctrine of discovery uh, for 500 years of colonialization and the Sand Creek Massacre led to the Utes' battle at Milk Creek and to the fact that they basically then uh, had lost all their land in Utah. And Tim's last um, article talks about this Ute removal and the policy coming to head in 1887, what's called Colorado's War, which is really the last uprising of Native peoples in the United States. Um, and the Utes Must Go continued to be the drumbeat of a journalist in uh, Colorado at that time. Um, and unfortunately, the Uncompadre Utes and Uncompadre Valley near today's Montrose, and some of the northwest uh, White River Utes near today's Meeker were told after uh, 
the hostages were released and after um, the investigation into the incident, were told to evacuate their homes and uh, to move to the UNTUA res- reservation. And, uh, and really, they were 1870, excuse me, 1873 and 1868. Both the Utes were allowed with those treaties to hunt in Colorado. And to this day, those treaties have reserved the right of hunting for the Ute people um, because treaties didn't really give things to the Indians. Treaties took things away unless they were reserved. And so the reserved rights for the Ute people were to be allowed still to be hunting in Colorado. And when they attempted to do the hunting in Colorado, they encountered, um, of course, uh, they encountered white people who did not want them back into Colorado after what had happened in Meeker. And uh, they had still came over. And so Colorado had about 200 of his followers with him and was hunting in um, western Colorado when it became evident that um, a posse was coming after them and uh, and the sheriff of Garfield County at the time, Mr. Kendall, uh, formed his posse and some also folks from um, from Aspen in the last article by uh, by uh, Tim talks about the, the forming of the posse in Aspen and how uh, they were celebrating, sending them off uh, to to war, basically. But very little became of that, except two people ended up, two white people ended up being killed, uh, uh, Mr. Folsom from Aspen and uh, and Jack Ward, or uh, uh, Jack was a deputized um, uh, person by by Sheriff Kendall, and he uh, is buried at the Pioneer Cemetery in Glenwood Springs, uh, and sometimes he is portrayed in the Glenwood Springs Historical Society's annual ghost walk as uh, one of the characters. He's buried next to the uh, monument to um, to uh, uh, <laughs> Doc Holliday, and so uh, he's. This is our, one of our direct connections in Glenwood to that whole last war with the Utes, as it was called, Colorado's War, uh, but. He, Jack had been killed at sporadic engagements uh, there uh, in August of 1887. Uh, and, uh, but a Ute messenger uh, from Colorado reached Fort Duchesne, where the Ute's reservation was headquartered, and uh, had then talked about the fact that there was a posse coming to drive the Ute's back into Colorado, or back into Utah from Colorado. And uh, really the... Uh, Buffalo soldiers were brought in uh, to stop the uh, posse from going into Utah. And so that was basically the end of the Colorado War. But please take time to read these uh, really great journalistic pieces, both by Amy Haddon Marsh and Soper Sun, and also in the Aspen Journalism articles. Until next time, uh, we'll sign off and ask you to whatever you do for land's sake, do it for land's sake.